together, you and I are about to embark on a non-linear road trip through popular culture. A subjective history tour chronicling the histories and legacies of the coolest movies and television shows ever made. This season, it's David Zucker, Jim Abrams, and Jerry Zucker's landmark 1980 parody, Airplane. From the movies and comedians that paved the way for the funniest movie in recorded history, to its contemporaries and the filmmakers it inspired, we're bouncing backwards and forwards through time for a salute to comedy on film and the fine cinematic art of orchestrated anarchy. So come along with me, your wonky yet affable host Ryan Luis Rodriguez, for season two of The Coolness Chronicles, The Shirley Chronicles. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh... We've warned you. Y'all come back now. Thanks for watching our motherfucking movie. Last week, we started a month-long deep dive into the first three films of the self-appointed heir appearance to Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker, Peter and Bobby Farrelly, the Farrelly brothers. This week, we're pushing the narrative forward with their next three directorial efforts, me, Myself, and Irene, Shallow Hal, and Stuck on You. It's a tale that involves inaccurate representations of schizophrenia, inadvisable use of body-distorting fat suits, and even questions regarding Eva Mendes's lack of prominence in the Fast and Furious series. On with the show! Franks and Beans, The Farrelly Brothers, Part 2. When last we spoke, Peter and Bobby Farrelly had completed their third feature, There's Something About Mary, which had followed through on the promise of Dumb and Dumber of their particular blend of stupid-slash-clever and redeemed the crushing commercial failure of Kingpin's theatrical release. They were back on top, and for their follow-up to Mary, they reunited with their Dumb and Dumber leading man, Jim Carrey, with two of the most successful directors in the industry, together again with the man recently proclaimed king of comedy, surely whatever they came up with together couldn't possibly fail. Or could it? That's something we'll have to address when we discuss 2000's Me, Myself, and Irene. This summer, Jim Carrey is Good Cop. Boy, you can't beat the open road! What are you staring at? What is your problem? It's between me and the kid. Same cop. I stay out of his business, he stays out of mine. I see total union and anonymity. Me, myself, and Irene. Sound good, candy pants. Rated R. June 23rd, only in theaters. Carrie plays a Rhode Island state trooper named Charlie Bailey Gates, because, sure, Charlie is, for the most part, a bright soul with one serious character defect, at least according to the film. He's a real doormat. No matter what life throws his way, he absolutely refuses to deal with his aggression head-on and pushes all of his negative energy deep within himself until it's simply no longer feasible. And of course, by no longer feasible, I mean his internal rage eventually manifests as a split personality named Hank who is 1,000% id. 
instigating conflict with anyone who slightly takes advantage of Charlie. Hank ends up throwing his life into utter turmoil, forcing Charlie to periodically take medication to suppress him. Charlie's life again gets thrown for a loop when he's assigned to escort a young woman named Irene, played by Carrie's once girlfriend and soon-to-be Academy Award winner Renee Zellweger, from Rhode Island to New York, where she is accused of committing a hit-and-run. Irene insists that it's all just a big smokescreen, the work of her mobbed-up ex-boyfriend. When Charlie hands Irene over to two agents from the EPA, the agents are assassinated by a hitman, and soon Charlie and Irene are on the run, and the feds think Charlie is a murderer. Plus, uh-oh, Charlie left his medication behind, so now nothing is stopping Hank from becoming unleashed. That's not gonna lead to anything good. Urgh. I had to simplify some of the plot mechanics simply because I've seen the film three times over the course of my life, and I'm still not sure I understand exactly what's going on most of the time. Granted, I'm a very stupid boy, but it's also convoluted in a way that reaches near Spies Like Us levels. Ultimately, I guess it doesn't really matter when it comes to comedy. If you laugh, it's successful, and if you don't, it's not. I can't honestly tell you what's supposed to be happening most of the time during Duck Soup, but it's still a five-star picture. Unfortunately, me, myself, and Irene is absolutely no duck soup. Not by a long shot. It's not even Dumb and Dumber, or Kingpin, or There's Something About Mary for that matter. It's a fairly middling effort, with a few solid gags, but for the most part, a lot of shoe leather. It feels like even the Farrelly's acknowledge that the film is of weaker stock, because it's absolutely drowning in extraneous idiosyncrasies. Practically every element in the film is distractingly eccentric, as if it's a patch job to cover up the film's inherent deficiencies as a gut-buster. Allow me to explain. The inciting incident for Charlie's suppression of his own hostility begins when his wife cheats on him and leaves him for a dwarf chauffeur, leaving him with three children that he raises as his own, but are definitely not his, identifiable as such because the kids are black. And they're not just black, they're super smart. I'm still not sure exactly what the Farrelly's are trying to say with Charlie's kids, because it's an inherently sketchy idea. Are they trying to use their own scatological good-heartedness to make some trenchant points about, I don't know, people making racist assumptions about neural capacity? Or is it, in effect, a racist joke? As if they're saying that it's inherently funny that people could be both extremely intelligent and minorities. It really says something that, again, even on my third viewing, I'm not entirely sure what the actual joke is. I'm sure it didn't bug me at age 14 when this movie was released, but it's been bouncing around in my brain a couple times since my most recent rewatch a couple of months ago, and it makes me deeply uncomfortable. But that's not all. In addition to the dwarf chauffeur and the three genius black sons, we have split personalities and a road movie where one of the key players is a surly albino. It sounds like the setup to an obscene joke that could get you arrested in 10 states. And speaking of the split personalities and being uncomfortable, I'm also not sure how I feel about the mental illness implications of the plot. Simply because saying, if you bottle up your anger, you'll become schizophrenic, turns neurodivergent people into cautionary tales. As a neurodivergent person myself, someone who is constantly bombarded with negative depictions in media made in bad faith, 
It's always dispiriting when people take issues like these and simply view them as plot devices to be used at their disposal. Ultimately, I give the film a pass because it's a broad comedy and the Farrelly's have a track record of a kind of humanism that ultimately sands away the rough edges, and I don't think they honestly meant any offense by it. It also helps that Carrie makes the two sides of his personality, both Charlie and Hank, completely different performances, which constantly reminds the audience that it has very little bearing on anything resembling any form of reality, especially when the two personalities begin to clash and share dominance of Carrie's entire body, which owes more to all of me than it does anything aiming for, I don't know, psychological consistency. And it's still more plausible than anything in fucking Fight Club. Something that dawned on me in re-watching me, myself, and Irene for the first time since, I don't know, maybe high school, is something that became clear to me after a couple years of Judd Apatow dominating the same district of comedy filmmaking. Like Apatow, the Fairley brothers make romantic comedies for dudes. Yeah, they'll streak Cameron Diaz's hair with semen and build an entire scene around Ben Stiller getting his junk caught in his pants zipper, or even in the case of me, myself, and Irene, shove a live chicken up a guy's ass, the less said about this the better, but their films have a still a sincere yet sentimental streak, especially in the next couple of films, telling stories about guys who find the perfect girl after succumbing to the occasional wacky misunderstanding. Me, Myself, and Irene is on the more abrasive end of the spectrum, but their next film up for discussion, we're skipping over Osmosis Jones since they only directed a few live-action scenes, but check out the Patreon, we'll talk about it there, is unmistakably a rom-com in both form and fashion, making no bones whatsoever about it. I'm talking, of course, about 2001's Shallow Hell. What? That's it? Just like that? We're breaking up? Well, we were never going out. This Friday, the world's most shallow man will be given the gift to see women in a whole new way. From this moment on, you're only going to see the inner beauty. You see that little fox out there? She's with me. You want to see a splash? Gwyneth Paltrow. Jack Black. I saw a knockout. I don't care what anybody else saw. Shallow Hal. Rated PG-13. Friday. Only in theaters. Jack Black plays Hal. He's shallow, hence the title. Hal is supposed to be coded as an internally decent person, but is in reality a lecherous chauvinist who is obsessed with the physical beauty of the women in his life none of whom give him the time of day because he looks like Jack Black. One day, Hal gets trapped in an elevator with Tony Robbins. Yes, the same motivational speaker with the giant teeth whose self-actualization books on tape your insufferable parents listen to. What would you consider your personal key to success? Step four, I hypnotize you with my teeth and you pay me money. Tony, are you the devil? I am not evil. I am not the devil. Anyway... Tony notices Hal's oblivious shallowness and performs some holistic magical spell, causing Hal to see the inner beauty of those around him. This leads Hal into falling in love with Rosemary, a 300-pound young woman who, to him, looks like Gwyneth Paltrow. Now, this is already sounding problematic, right? It's clear that, like the neurodivergent nonsense of the previous film, the Farrelly's hearts are in the right place but it's how they go about executing their best intentions that ends up causing some consternation. It's a perfect example of having your heart in the right place and your head in the wrong place. Because whenever we see Rosemary as she actually is, it's Gwyneth Paltrow in a fat suit. As if a woman is only attractive 
because she looks like real thin Gwyneth and not someone with an atypical body type. Inner beauty, according to the Farrelly's, is classified as tight, skinny, stereotypically beautiful. Clear as day. With all the recent discussion that's been going on in the media about actors wearing controversial fat suits, it's an interesting question to raise about how we see the idealized figure, and it pushes the Farrelly's humanism to the breaking point. Beauty truly is in the eye of the beholder, and I think that's ultimately what the movie is trying to say. But trying to say something is very different than trying and failing to pull it off. But it gets a little more complicated, too. Frequently, the brothers will cast two different actors to play certain characters, one who demonstrates the inner beauty and one who demonstrates the outer beauty, which means occasionally someone is being hired to play either the ugly or attractive version of someone else. Or when the same actor plays the inner and outer beauty, they'll be caked in grotesque makeup, as if looking in any way different is a deal breaker. It turns Shallow Hal into this fascinating case study. Not fascinating in a way that makes it pleasant or even tolerable to watch, but fascinating in the sense of a morbid curiosity. Because as I mentioned earlier, it's very much a rom-com with all of the tropes intact, down to the now standard reconciliation after a narratively arbitrary breakup. The gross-out tendencies of the Farrelly's earlier films are mostly phased out, aside from the perceived grotesqueries on display, which makes me believe that they were shooting for a demographic that leaned more towards women than men for the first time. Because of this, by featuring practically every female character seen as only attractive or unattractive according to Hal's male gaze, feels a little more inadvisable than usual. While Shallow Hal is the definition of polarizing, the Farrelly's followed it up two years later with a much more successfully sweet film, one that actually tries to be more humane than their typical fare and actually manages to stick the landing, no pun intended, it's 2003's Stuck on You. Oh, nice Paul Walter. Only the Fairley Brothers, the directors of There's Something About Mary. Hey, you guys are stuck together. And Shallow Hal awesome. could make a film about brothers. This close. I'm not going another step until you apologize. Don't you walk away from me. Yeah, you better run. Matt Damon, Greg Kinnear. Let's never do anything that makes us look like total idiots. Stuck on you. I'm open. Rated PG-13, December 12th, only in theater. Matt Damon and Greg Kinnear look nothing like brothers, but Stuck on You posits a reality where they're actually conjoined twins, Bob and Walt Tenner. Where Walt is very introverted and unassuming, Bob wants desperately to be a big-time actor in Hollyweird. After Bob gets a part in a local play, Walt agrees to support Bob's acting career, and they uproot from their life in quaint Martha's Vineyard to good old Los Angeles, where Bob has some difficulty securing gigs. Bob's luck changes when Cher, played by, yes, Cher, finds herself starring on a television show called Honey and the Bees, not too dissimilar from something that Joey would star in on Friends. Hoping to get the show cancelled, Cher, who has the contractual right to choose her co-stars, selects Bob as her co-lead on the show, believing that nobody would go ahead with a TV show co-starring a set of conjoined twins. Little does she know, the producers are onto her ruse and agree to hire Bob, and he ends up becoming legitimately famous, which goes to Walt's head and causes some complications in their relationship, eventually leading to their decision to get separated. And the guy who separates the twins? Ben Carson, 
the former Trump head of housing and urban development. You can't make this shit up, folks. Who's going to show up in the next Fairly Brothers movie? Steve Bannon? Betsy DeVos? Steve Mnuchin? He's a terrible movie producer. It wouldn't be unprecedented. But I digress. Stuck on You is not great or uproarious by any means, but I appreciate what it's going for. It's a little sadder and more bittersweet than the traditional Fairly Fair. Bob and Walt's pre-fame life, especially when they move from magical Martha's Vineyard to squalid Los Angeles, borders on depressing at times. It's less gross than their typical fare as well, without indulging in or contradicting their particular idiosyncrasies. It's also the first Farrelly movie since Kingpin to be shot in scope, and accordingly, it might be their prettiest looking picture. Director of photography Dan Mindel went on to become J.J. Abrams' cinematographer and has worked with Tony Scott on some of his best-looking films, for what it's worth. But the most successful thing about Stuck on You is the way that it treats Bob and Walt. Much like the handling of mentally retarded characters in There's Something About Mary and a character with spina bifida in Shallow Hal, Bob and Walt are treated with dignity. Occasionally, the joke is aimed in their direction, and it's not entirely without malice, but it's clear that the Farrelly's have respect for those with disabilities and deformities, and have professed as much. Speaking with Ability Magazine, Peter Farrelly said, quote, The problem is not that we look down on these people, but rather that we look up at them and feel that they are better than us. We revere them. Until someone breaks the mold and shows us something differently and makes that which once seemed like a weakness into a strength, we keep our misperceptions. End quote. It's words like that that makes Shallow Hal all the more baffling, but oh well. I was left with one question throughout Stuck on You, though, and it has nothing to do with humanism or disabilities. It instead focuses on female lead Eva Mendez, who is so sparkling and charming in this film. And my question is, why isn't Eva Mendez in all the Fast and Furious movies? She got a cameo in the post credit scene of Fast Five, but never got to come back in earnest. That's so unfair. Eva Mendez deserves to be driving with that one lady with the immaculate eyebrows and that bald guy who kind of looks like a peanut if you squint. That's all. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Next week, we're going to wrap up this deep dive into the Farrelly Brothers with the duo's slow decline into irrelevancy. Fever Pitch, The Heartbreak Kid, Hall Pass, The Three Stooges, and their final picture together, an ill-fated sequel to Dumb and Dumber. Stay tuned, folks. It's going to get real sad. And that is where we end this episode of The Shirley Chronicles. If you're a fan of the show, $5 gets you access to not just early broadcasts of every episode, but countless hours of bonus content and super fun weekly minisodes every Friday that spin off from the weekly show exclusively at patreon.com slash coolness chronicles. But before we take off for the week, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. It's Ryan's Recommendations. <laughs> Cameron Crowe. Recently, that name has tended to be associated with more than a few unqualified disasters. But before this filmmaker bought a zoo, or disabled a military satellite with clips from MTV, or invented the manic pixie dream girl, he was reliable, potent, eminently quotable, often iconic. And this week, my recommendation is easily my favorite of his, 2000's Almost Famous. 
kinda. You wanna come to LA? No, 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 no. At the age of 15, William saw it all. I write for Rolling Stone. He did it all. We need this story in four days. And he lived to tell about it. I am a golden god! Time Magazine raves, almost famous, is absolutely fabulous. Newsweek says it's hilarious. And Premier Magazine calls it the movie of the year. From the creator of Jerry Maguire, almost famous, rated R, now playing everywhere. Now, let it be known that I adore Almost Famous. It's a great movie in its current form. In fact, in its current form, it's probably still my favorite of his. But there's a better version. First, some background. Almost Famous is a fictionalized version of Crowe's actual experience as a teenage rock critic and reporter for Rolling Stone, heavily based on his time on the road with bands like the Allman Brothers and the Eagles with a dash of Led Zeppelin for good measure. It won him an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. It's good. You should watch it. But in December 2001, coinciding with the release of Crow's then-latest film, Vanilla Sky, which I also love, but definitely to a lesser degree, the director released a so-called bootleg cut of Almost Famous, lasting almost 40 minutes longer in a package designed to look like a bootleg live version of a popular album that you would trade at a swap meet. A bootleg cut that has been renamed untitled. It turns what was already a shaggy, rambling series of events depicting a crow surrogate following around a band called Stillwater on the verge of mainstream success into a more of a hangout movie. A shaggier, more rambling, near three-hour road trip with friends set to arguably one of the most impeccably curated soundtracks in the history of the medium. Like the bus the characters are traveling on, it takes many pit stops along the way to its eventual destination and represents a vibe much more than a narrative experience. If you're tuned to its wavelength, it's intoxicating and occasionally exhilarating. The bootleg cut has since been released on Blu-ray and recently as a 4K steelbook, the version that currently sits among my collection, and it's never looked better, but the reason you should pick it up has nothing to do with the movie itself. It has to do with the bonus features, specifically the audio commentary. I know I've been promising to release a spin-off podcast that looks at film through the prism of supplemental commentaries, and I will get to it once this season, and by extension, this series is over. But hear me out anyway. The commentary features Crow and his real mother, Alice, who was fictionalized as the protagonist's mother, Elaine, played by the justifiably Oscar-nominated Frances McDormand. Together, the two detail just how close Almost Famous got to their real relationship and experiences, relayed by two souls who transcend a mother-son relationship into one more accurately described as best friends bonded at the soul. And nothing is more fun and hilarious as Alice calling bullshit on what her son rendered on celluloid. Oh, I don't go barefoot. Oh, Francis, please. This is my mom's one... Uh comment about the movie is that she never went barefoot in the house. I think we got to give that one to the amazing Frances McDormand. <laughs> what do you say, Mom? Oh, no comment. It's just the best. Just the best. The bee's knees. People still use that expression, right? No? Well, it's a throwback, which feels appropriate when recommending Untitled. The bootleg cut isn't currently streaming for free anywhere, but you can rent or purchase it in 4K, no less, on Amazon Prime, but that commentary 
is strictly a physical media deal, so you want to pick up the Blu-ray, which is damn affordable. For more reviews and recommendations, check out my Letterbox page at letterboxd.com slash coolnesspodcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy what you hear, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your chosen source, locatable as the Coolness Chronicles, and share it with anyone you can, any way you can. This has been the largest and most fulfilling endeavor I've ever seen to completion, and it would be nice to keep making the show until it just isn't fun anymore. This is a 1,000% independent nonprofit podcast, and as such, we are markedly less visible. Every time you guys and gals spread the word, it assures that we can afford to record another day. Have any questions or comments? Have I missed anything so far in this series? Contact me on Twitter at CoolnessPodRyan, Instagram at The Coolness Chronicles, on Podchaser, or on our Facebook page, and keep on the lookout for updates. Also, check out the other podcast that I co-host, Reels of Justice, where every week we put a movie on trial to determine if it's guilty or innocent of being a bad movie. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you find fine, upstanding, well-groomed podcasts. Special thanks to the amazing Lacey Barker for all of our wonderful artwork, Bill Sherm for all of our wonderful music, and special, special thanks to our equally amazing patrons. Kathleen D., Isabel T., Bobby L., Michael A., Ian C., T-Flex, Ian M., Kitty K., Kelly B., The Vern, Michael H., Mary M., Bill M., Christopher H., Christopher J., Tracy R., and Jenny R. Until next time, do what you love, don't be a dick, and take care. Dawn, that's the end.